0: CHAPTER Twenty, THE UNREASONABLE CHILD After the Buddha had ended his discourse, Karmanita remained sitting for a long time, silent and motionless, a prey to conflicting and sceptical thoughts. Finally he said, You have told me much of how the monk should make an end of suffering in his lifetime, but nothing whatever of what becomes of him when his body disintegrates in death and returns to its elements except that from that time on neither people nor gods nor even nature herself sees him again. But of an eternal life of supreme happiness and heavenly bliss, of that I have heard nothing. Has the Master revealed nothing concerning it? Even so, brother, thus it is. The Tathagata has revealed nothing concerning it. That's as much as to say that the Lord Buddha knows no more of this most important of all questions than I myself, replied Karmanita discontentedly. Do you think it to be so? In that same Singsapa wood, in the neighbourhood of Kosambi, where you and your varsity swore eternal fidelity, and pledged yourselves to meet again in the paradise of the west, there the Tathagata at one time took up his abode. As he walked through the wood, he picked up a bundle of Singsapa leaves in his hand, and he said to the monks who were with him, What do you think, Bhikkhus? Which are more numerous, these Singsapa leaves which I have in my hand, or all the other leaves in the forest? Immediately they answered, The leaves which you have in your hand are very few, Venerable Sir, whereas the leaves in the sinks forest are far more numerous. In the same way, Bhikkhus, said the Tathagata, that which I have discerned and yet not revealed to you is far greater in some than that which I have revealed to you. And why have I not revealed everything? Because it is not helpful spiritually. It is not in keeping with the path of simplicity and renunciation. It does not lead to the turning away from all worldly things, nor to the letting go of passions, nor to the final disowning of all that is subject to change, nor to perfect knowledge and enlightenment. It does not aid the realization of nirvana. If the master spoke thus in the Singsapur at Kosambi, answered Karmanita, then the matter is probably even more serious still. For in that case, he has certainly been silent on the point in order not to discourage or, as might well happen, even terrify his disciples, as he certainly would if he should reveal to them his version of the final truth, namely, annihilation. This seems to me result as a necessary consequence from what you so plainly stated, for, after all the objects of the five senses and thought have been denied and rejected as fleeting, as without any real existence, and as full of suffering, there remain no powers by means of which we could grasp anything whatsoever." So I understand, Venerable Sir, from the doctrine you just expounded to me, that those who have freed themselves from all delusion fall victim to annihilation when the body dies, that they vanish and have no existence beyond death. Did you not say to me, asked the Buddha, that within a month he would sit at the feet of the Master in the grove of Jetavana near Savati? I assuredly hope to do so, Venerable Sir. Why do you ask me? When you sit at the feet of the Tathagata, what do you think, my friend? Is the physical form which you will see then, which you will be able to touch with your hand, along with the mind that then reveals itself with its sensations, perceptions and ideas, do you see that as being the Tathagata, the perfect one? Do you look upon it as such? I do not, Venerable Sir. Perhaps then you would see the Tathagata as being in the body and mind. Do you look upon it like that? I do not, Venerable Sir. Then, may it be, my friend, that you see that the Tathagata as apart from the body and the mind. I do not look upon it in that light, Venerable Sir. Do you think, then, that the Tathagata is the owner of that body and that mind? Is that your view, my friend? That's not the way I see it, either, Venerable Sir. Do you see the Tathagata, then, as having no body and no mind? He is apart from them, insofar as his being is not fully comprehended within those elements. Well, what elements or powers have you then, my friend, apart from those of the body with all its qualities, of which we are aware through the senses, and apart from those of the mind with all its sensations, perceptions and ideas, what powers have you beyond these, by means of which you can fully apprehend what you have not yet apprehended in the being of the Tatargata? Such further powers, Venerable Sir, I must acknowledge I do not possess then even here, friend Karmanita, in the world of senses, the Tathagata is not in truth and in his very essence apprehendable by you. Is it then right to say that the Tathagata, or any one of those who have freed themselves from all delusion, is doomed to annihilation when his life ends, that he does not exist beyond death, solely because you are not in possession of any powers by which you can, in truth, apprehend him in his very essence there? Questioned in such a fashion, Carmenita sat speechless for some time, his body bent, his head bowed. Even if I have no right to make that assertion, he said finally, it still seems to me to be implied plainly enough in the silence of the Tathagata, for he certainly would not have maintained such a silence if he had had anything joyous to communicate, which would of course be the case if he knew that for one who had conquered suffering there remained after death not only not annihilation, but eternal and blessed life it's certain that such a communication could only serve as a spur to his disciples and be a help to them in their spiritual efforts. Do you think so, my friend? How would it be if the Tathagata had not pointed to the end of all suffering as the final goal, even as he had also begun with suffering in the beginning, but had extolled an eternal and blessed life out beyond it, and beyond this life of ours? Many of his disciples would assuredly have been delighted with the idea, would have clung to it eagerly, would have longed for its fulfilment, but with the passionate longing which disturbs all true cheerfulness and serenity. So would they not also then have been involved unperceived in the meshes of the powerful net of craving for existence? And while clinging to a beyond, for which by necessity they would have had to borrow all the colouring from this life, would they not have only clung even more to the present the more they pursued that beyond? Whatever kinds of existence there are, in any way, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. So, one who sees this as it is, abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. And how does such a one see this reality? They see whatever has come into being as simply having come into being. By seeing it thus, they have entered upon the way to dispassion for it, to the fading and cessation of craving for it. That is how one with vision sees. For like a watchdog that, bound to a post and trying to free itself, rushes in a circle round about it, even so those worthy disciples who, even though they dearly long to transcend this body and the world, they still remain bound to it, whether they love it or they hate it, rushing in endless circles around it. "'Though I am certainly compelled to acknowledge this danger,' Carmenita answered, "'I still hold that the other danger, the uncertainty evoked by silence, is by far the more dangerous.' inasmuch as it cripples the energies from the very beginning. For how can the disciple be expected to exert himself with all his might to overcome all suffering with decision and courage if he doesn't know what is to follow, eternal bliss or non-existence? My friend, what would you think in such a case as this? Let us say that a house is burning, and that the servant runs to waken the master saying, Get up, sir, fly, the house is on fire, Already the rafters are burning, and the roof is about to fall in. Would the master be likely to answer, Go, my good fellow, and see whether there is rain and storm outside, or whether it is a fine moonlit night. In the latter case, we will take ourselves outside. How, venerable sir, could the master give such an answer, for the servant had called to him in terror, Fly, sir, the house is on fire. Already the rafters are burning, and the roof threatens to fall in. Indeed the servant had called to him thus, But if, in spite of that, the master answered, Go, my good fellow, and see whether there is rain and storm outside, would you not conclude from it that the master had not heard correctly what his faithful servant had said? That the mortal danger which hung over his head had by no means become clear to him? I'd certainly be forced to that conclusion, venerable sir, otherwise it would be unthinkable that the man could give such a foolish answer. Even so, friend, you should therefore also act as if your head were encompassed by flames, as if your house were on fire. And what house? The world. And set on fire by what flame? By the flame of desire, by the flame of hate, by the flame of delusion. The whole world is being consumed by flames. The whole world is enveloped in smoke. The whole world rocks to its foundations. Addressed thus, Carmenita trembled, as does a young buffalo when it hears for the first time the roar of the tiger in a neighboring thicket. With bent body, head sunk on his breast, his face suffused with burning colour, he sat for some time without uttering a word. Then, in a gruff and although somewhat tremulous voice, he answered, It still does not please me that the Master has revealed nothing concerning this matter. That is, if he was able to give any information which would have been full of promise, and even if he had been silent, because what he knew was comfortless and terrifying, or because he knew absolutely nothing, I am still no better pleased.' For the thoughts and the efforts of human beings are directed towards happiness and pleasure, a tendency which has its foundation in nature herself, and cannot be otherwise. And in keeping with this is the following, which I have heard from the lips of Brahmin priests. Let us imagine the case of a youth, capable, eager for knowledge, the quickest, strongest, most powerful of all youths, and that to him belonged the world with all its treasures. That would be a human joy. But a hundred human joys are but as one joy of the heavenly Devata. And a hundred joys of the heavenly Devata are but as one joy for the gods. And a hundred joys of the gods are but as one joy of Indra. And a hundred joys of Indra are but as one joy of Prajapati. And a hundred joys of Prajapati are but as one joy of Brahma. This is the supreme joy. That is the path to the supreme joy. Yes friend. But perhaps I can use another analogy to illustrate the situation I'm describing. Imagine there was an inexperienced child, incapable of sensible reasoning. This child feels in his tooth a burning, boring, stabbing pain, and runs to an eminent and learned physician and pours out his troubles to him. I beg you, honoured sir, to give me by your skill a feeling of blissful rapture in place of this pain at present in my tooth. And the physician answers, My dear child, The sole aim of my skill is the removal of pain. But the spoilt child begins to wail, Oh, I have endured a burning, stabbing, boring pain in my tooth for so long. Is it not reasonable that I should now enjoy a feeling of rapture, of delicious pleasure instead? There do exist, as I have heard, learned and experienced physicians whose skill goes this far, and I believed that you were one of those. And then this foolish child runs to a quack, a miracle worker from the land of Gandhara, who causes the following announcement to be made by a town-crier to the accompaniment of drums and conches. "'Health is the great of all gifts. Health is the goal of all people. "'Blooming, luxuriant health, a comfortable and blissful feeling in all one's members, "'in every vein and fibre of the body, such as the gods enjoy, "'even the sickliest can obtain by my help at very small cost.' "'To this miracle-worker the child runs and pours out his troubles.' I beg you, honored sir, by your skill, give me a feeling of comfort or blissful rapture in place of this pain in my tooth. And the magician answers, My dear child, in doing just this very thing lies my skill. After he has pocketed the money offered by the child, he touches the tooth with his finger and produces a magical effect, by means of which a feeling of blissful pleasure drives out the pain. And the foolish child runs home overjoyed and supremely happy. After a short time, however, the feeling of pleasure gradually subsides, and the pain returns. And why? Because the cause of the pain was not removed. Then let us also suppose that another reasonable person feels a burning, stabbing, boring pain in her tooth. And she goes to a learned and experienced physician and tells him of her trouble, saying, Honoured sir, I beg you by your skill to free me from this pain. And the physician answers, If you, madam, demand no more from me, I can safely trust my skill that far. How could I ask for more, replies the woman, and the physician examines the tooth and finds the cause of the pain in an inflammation at the root. Go home and have a leech put on this spot. When the leech has sucked itself full and falls off, then lay these herbs on the wound. By so doing, the pus and the impure blood will be removed and the pain will cease. This reasonable person then goes home, "'and does as the physician bids her, "'and the pain goes and does not return. "'And why? "'Because the cause of the pain has been removed.' "'Now when the master ceased speaking, "'Carmenita sat reduced to silence and sorely disturbed, "'his body bent, his head sunk on his breast, "'his face suffused with colour and without a word, "'while anguished sweat dropped from his forehead "'and trickled down from his armpits. "'For did he not feel himself compared by this venerable teacher "'to a foolish child?' and made equal with one. And as he was unable to find an answer, in spite of his utmost efforts, he was near to weeping. Finally, when able to command his voice, he asked in a subdued tone, Venerable Sir, have you heard all this before, from the mouth of the Master, the perfect Buddha himself? Now, it occasionally happens that Buddhas smile, And at this question, a wry and gentle smile did indeed play momentarily about the master's lips. No, brother, he replied. I cannot truly say that I have. When the pilgrim Carmenita heard this answer, he joyfully raised his bent body, and with glistening eye and reanimated voice he burst forth. Wasn't I sure of it? Oh, I knew for certain that this couldn't be the doctrine of the master himself, but rather your own tortuous interpretation of it. An interpretation based altogether on misunderstanding. Is it not said that the doctrine of the Buddha is bliss in the beginning, bliss in the middle, and bliss in the end? So, how could one say that of a teaching which does not promise eternal and blessed life, full of the most supreme joy? In a few weeks, if I step out bravely, I shall myself sit at the feet of the Master and receive the teaching of liberation from his own lips, as a child draws sweet nourishment from his mother's breast. And you also should make efforts to get there too, And once truly taught, maybe you will alter your mistaken and destructive view of things. But look, those strips of moonlight have now stretched themselves out and have almost disappeared. It must be far into the night. Let us lay ourselves down to sleep. As you will, brother, answered the master kindly. And, drawing his robe more closely around him, he laid himself down on his mat in the posture of the lion, supporting himself on his right arm, his left foot resting on the right having in mind the hour of awakening he instantly fell asleep